0: When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The feed hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt,
1: I am John Theodore, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Hopefully, everybody's doing well. A little housekeeping. Hopefully, everybody's been listening to the podcast, loving and enjoying it. I've got a ton of feedback. I appreciate everybody giving me feedback. I've gotten a ton of messages on topics people want to hear about. Keep doing that. Send me that information if you want to email me. Email address is john at whitetaillandscapes.com. I'd be happy to, you know, oblige your opinions and thoughts. Also, everyone go in, five star review and comment. I continue to appreciate people following the, again, this podcast and and allowing it to grow. It's become, I think, one of the largest habitat podcasts at this point. So I'm really proud and pleased that we got a great group of guys, and uh, that's why we're continuing to do this. We want to give back and help people i got a great guest on today. He's been on a couple times before, Tim Russell, Greenfire Forestry. Tim is our resident professional forester, and we're going to talk about chestnuts today. And we're going to go through the history, the lineage of chestnuts, and the importance on the landscape. And where we're at today, and there's a lot of evolution, uh, genetically modified you know, plants have now become the norm in some areas. And this is one that's going to, you know, hopefully, you know, hit the streets and a part of the restoration project that we're seeing across the landscape of reintroducing the American chestnut. And I, Tim's got a lot of history and experience in this area. Uh, I'm familiar with planting chestnuts on the landscape and recommending clients. So I'm really kind of interested to hear his perspective and point of view and where we're at today. Tim, are you on the line? I'm here. All right. Great. Thanks for having me
2: back, John. Good, man. So uh, what have you been up to lately? What's What's in your world? Oh, cruising timber, marking timber, writing some forest management plans, you know, uh, getting geared up for uh, some herbicide application this season. So all that good sort of stuff, forestry related, habitat improvement related type of work.
1: Good. I want to hook up at some point. We have not seen each other in a while. And I, I, I kind of miss interacting with you. I, I need some more Uh, Tim time so I'm hopefully we can sometime sometime get together here this this summer and and visit because we're not we're not too far from each other so let's get into the topic and let's start digging into the history of chestnuts and and go through the lineage and and what happened to the tree and and how devastating that was to the landscape and let's let's kind of just bridge everything so a lot of people don't know the history of chestnuts and their significance on the landscape.
2: Sure. Well, American chestnut at one point was a very common tree in the eastern United States. Uh, it, It provided a lot in terms of lumber that was rot resistant. The bark could be used for siding on houses and, you know, of course, the actual nut itself. It was a food source for human. It was a food source for many, many different species of wildlife. And, you know, so it was significant economically. It was a significant part of the forest in an ecological sense. In the early 1900s, that's when the chestnut blight was first introduced in the U.S. And over the course of about 50 years, uh, the once great American chestnut has sort of been reduced from the great overstory trees that cranked out huge amounts of hard mass to uh, sort of understory sprouts, um, which is to say they're not extinct. Um, You know, I still find them out there and other foresters still find them out there. But what you end up finding is sometimes the actual dead individual that it sprouted from, um, but then, you know, something that sprouted sprouted off of the root system and will in turn often get the blight. And so you see, you know, evidence of of the blight on actual shoots that are coming back up. And in that environment, kind of the understory, not so much light, never really making it into the main canopy, uh, we end up finding chestnut trees, but often where they don't make it, far enough along to reproduce and actually put out chestnuts, which, you know, of course means that there are no chestnut for wildlife and deer, but also that means that they're not having reproductive success where in a way you could think of it as almost a functional extinction because you can find individuals of the species out there on the landscape, but they certainly are not playing their ecological role and providing what, what they once would have.
1: And I don't know a lot about this, but the connection specifically to you know the animal populations, the mammals in relationship to chestnuts, and of course, you know this day and age, people are planning, you know variations of the, these chestnuts, whether they're hybrid or you know a, a non-native variety, and and the benefit on the landscape is obviously important, but the abundance that they weren't once were in was was huge. I, I think statistics, and I, again, don't anybody don't quote me on this specifically, but landscape wise, I mean, they went from. Maine, all the way to down to Kentucky. You know, I would say in that 50-year span, the demise or the impact of wildlife had to be tremendous. I don't know how well that was studied. But I know, you know, obviously to us as, as individuals, who were you know, using them as edible or you were using them for trade. I mean, that that would be something that would be impactful. But again, to the wildlife, a uh, huge impact, and certainly impact to you know insects and, and other pollinators because of course they're a pollinator source. So something to consider there as well. All right, so let's let's go into the value because I think it's important to think about you know what a, a nut producing plant does you know on the landscape and its value across the landscape. What,
2: what's your What's your take on that? Sure. Well, uh, for one, I would not say chestnut just simply measures up to other mass-producing trees. Um, you know, a lot of the range that chestnut once covered has other species like you know your oaks, your hickories, American beech, um, and certainly you know having some type of hard mass there is is good. In their day, chestnuts were known for producing. And maybe this is an oxymoron, but bumper crops annually, um, really producing large amounts of hard mast. Not so much the way that uh, oaks are known for having, say, mast years, where maybe every few years they put out a lot of uh, a lot of nuts, and then not necessarily each year in between. So, so to some degree, they they provided consistent food, uh, but. They're also different in their actual content. So when it comes to acorns and whitetails, people often think like, oh, acorns, lots of protein, because like as humans, we're like, oh, plant-based protein and you're eating nuts and that kind of thing. And there is protein in acorns, but most of what you're providing through acorns is energy. There's somewhat of a higher fat content compared to carbohydrate content in your red oaks versus your white oaks. But there is a, a, you know, a a big difference with American chestnut in the amount of uh, protein that they offer. Um, And they run about 11% protein versus about 6% protein that you might find in in acorns. So you're looking at something that provides something that acorns don't entirely provide that, that level of protein in a volume and a consistency that they don't Uh, they're also, you know, you're, Uh, chestnuts compared to red oak don't have those bitter tannins that if you've ever picked one up and tasted it you can definitely tell there's kind of a a foul taste there and there's actually a a decent sugar content too in chestnuts that make them very palatable which you know when we're looking at something that's going to not just benefit deer but be highly attractive to deer you know palatability is an important part of that too um and not just hey you know is it good for deer or is it attractive to deer? And, you know, as I was sort of just noticing as I'm thinking about American chestnut and when they put out nuts and, and the protein that they provide, a lot of the protein that deer actually get, they're getting through green forage, they're getting through weeds. And at the time that chestnuts are just becoming available, maybe as early as middle of September, more end of September, but, you know, going through October and potentially into November, they're providing that, Protein during a window of time when protein that would be available in your annual and perennial weeds is is kind of dwindling. You know we're getting into that time of year, so uh, it's not just about thinking what it provides, but at what time of year it's being provided. You know in relation to what deer need.
1: All right, so you you just brought up a great point, and I think that is again seasonal importance. And I'm going to give a little strategy. This is one of my secrets. So when I'm designing bedding areas. I'm usually cutting a swath or a large area, i opening, creating a, a temporary opening or a permanent opening. And I, if I'm going to place trees, then it's it's going to be temporary because those trees are going to grow up. In that temporary opening, a good place, depending on you know these particular varieties of, of, of chestnut that you're planting, a great opportunity to build a foundation food source that's an annual producer. Put it right in the bedding areas or just adjacent to a bedding area to pull deer in a certain direction. But a great strategy... I very rarely see that. I recommend that on most client properties. Again, zone-specific, soil-specific, but again, that's just a great recommendation. Had to put my two cents
2: in there, Tim, but uh, keep going. (laughs) No, absolutely. You know, that's um, that's a great point. So, uh, you know, obviously we recognize chestnut provides huge value to deer and other wildlife, and it was sort of abruptly taken from us, and there have been different efforts out there to try and put chestnut back on the landscape and to some degree to try and restore actual risk re- actually restore american chestnut and so some of those attempts uh, have been an attempt at creating a hybrid which i'll differentiate from a transgenic chestnut later on um, and i say that because transgenic chestnut trees aren't really out there on the landscape yet. And sometimes I mention them and folks say, Hey, I got one of those at Walmart and really, you know, what they have is a hybrid, which is good, but, but it is different. Um, So, you know, a hybrid, you're basically looking at a cross between two species and it's human facilitated, but it's a little bit closer to the old fashioned way and that it does actually, it's something that's occurring by pollination and genetic recombination, you know, in, in that sense. Um, And so some of the attempts to restore American chestnut, they've taken pollen that came from individual American chestnuts that seem to survive the blight and try to create hybrids that way. Those didn't work out so well. Um, We're probably, you know, you may have heard of some hybrid chestnut. that's a hybrid between Chinese chestnut and American chestnut, um, and that can produce uh, individuals that are potentially resistant to the blight. In, in trying to, I suppose, you know, restore American chestnut, part of the problem becomes with a hybrid, you know, you think you, make one, you start with one hybrid and you're looking at a tree that is, of course, not entirely American chestnut. It's a hybrid. So one of the, the methods that is used in trying to create an American chestnut hybrid that will be more resistant to the blight, but be more like American chestnut in, in the way that we, would like it to be and, and sort of have the character and growth habit of American chestnut is a technique called back crossing, where a hybrid is then crossed with a parent um, that has a desirable characteristic um, and is generally used as a means to isolate genes, a small number of genes that are desirable and try to isolate those genes within an individual that might otherwise be, in this case, very high percentage American. Part of the problem with using that method to restore American chestnut is that there are many different genes from the Chinese chestnut tree, which contribute to that resistance. And so the backcrossing method attempting to sort of isolate those genes is difficult because there are so many different genes. What you ultimately end up having are hybrids that are highly resistant to the blight and they have more Chinese genetics. And the more American chestnut genetics that are put into a hybrid, on average, typically, the less resistant it is to the blight. Um, And so (laughs) there are some different hybrids out there that have certainly, um, you know, those efforts have resulted in some great trees that are great mast producers. But when you have a hybrid that is more Chinese than it is American and highly resistant to the blight, you're not going to necessarily get that growth habit and architecture and and how the american chestnut tree grew which means that the hybrids available today are probably not the future of the american chestnut in that they likely wouldn't be competitive in a forested setting the way that american chestnut it could be cultivated but it used to grow wild and it used to come up and have no trouble competing with oak and hickory and all that on the sites that it used to occur.
1: So uh, years ago, I was in the Finger Lakes region, so this is in New York State, and I was on a property that had a orchard, and the orchard was lined just like you would think an orchard, kind of like an apple orchard, and it was all Chinese chestnut. Typically, you're going to see the Chinese very straight trunk. Now, some I have actually Chinese in my yard, and uh, I've got Dunstan, which is a hybrid chestnut, to Tim's point earlier, Uh, it's a cross. You know, you'll see, you know, multiple stocked stems. It just depends how the way the trees manage. And there's a genetic variation in all these different trees. But in that one example, you know, they were spaced probably, I would say, 20 or 30 feet apart, something like that. The production value was tremendous. But again, that was an open setting. There was no competition. So to Tim's point, and to the point I made earlier, you've got to recognize that some of these varieties may not do well in uh, a shade setting, so to speak, or a competing situation, so you've got to just kind of measure that and see how well they do, and maybe you have to keep vegetation down again if you're promoting maybe a Chinese variety on the landscape. And Tim, I, I got a question for you. So I'm just gonna you've, sure. you're laying some stuff on us, and again, a lot of people in this biomimicry, they're they're wanting to have plants that are that are native and natural on the landscape. And the example here is American, you know, it's, it's, it's present, but it's, it's kind of a functionally extinct, so to speak. It, it grows and dies and grows and dies uh, from, from the roots. You know, what's your opinion on introduction of, you know, the Chinese chestnut on the landscape. I mean, it's already been here. It's been here for over a hundred years. What, what is your opinion of that? And is it impactful to this American, you know, hope? And I know we haven't gotten there yet, but, you know, what, what is your opinion on that? Because I've been asked this
2: question, and I don't really know how to respond. Sure. Well, I guess, for one, I don't really see the detriment. Um, had we introduced Chinese chestnut and then it became invasive, like some other non-native species have been, you know, that would be of concern. Uh, of course, in looking at Chinese chestnut, part of that question would be, well, where are you getting your nursery stock? Are you buying Chinese chestnut from an American producer who grew them? Or are we opening up the potential to say, bring in another disease like we did bringing in Japanese chestnut. And that's, you know, how the chestnut light got here in the first place. So to me, the potential importation of seedling stock at least feels like it comes with a greater risk because, I mean, you know, chestnut's the topic for discussion today, but Dutch elm disease, emerald ash borer, Asian longhorn beetle, you know, we could keep going on stuff that we just imported. Um, but as far as managing the stuff on the landscape, the actual hard mass that it provides is similar to what wildlife would be getting. Uh, you know, and I, I guess I just don't see the detriment to it. I just also don't see it as the hope for replacement to and future of the American chestnut. Um, but absolutely, I think you kind of touched on the main points I would give is that you want it in an open setting. It could be, you know, you, it could be food plot. It could be native warm season grasses and you're doing more of a savanna. But uh, absolutely, you know, putting them on a property where they're going to get full sunlight so that they're going to produce for you yeah, I I don't see it detracting at all from the efforts to restore American chestnut. And not only is that a food source, but, you know, sometimes you go into a food plot that just feels a little bit too big and it's going to be nocturnal and sometimes having an orchard in the middle or a couple that, that sort of break up that line of sight in a food plot just structurally can also contribute as well.
1: Yeah, great, great idea and great suggestion there, of course. I mean, and again, introducing a, a non-native plant that isn't necessarily uh, in, invasive in the sense that it it correlates to a, a large expansion across the landscape. I've seen it be really controlled. Um, the one thing, and this is kind of funny. I don't know what I'm thinking about this. Is my daughter and I are recently in the backyard and the burrs. So when these you know these chestnuts produce th- th- this this crop, it's in this burr. And this burr is this really prickly type structure, and it's it's on the ground. And if if you step on it, it's gonna hurt. And uh, so just, just a recommendation, you, you might not want them to have them too close to the, the family and kids and dogs because if they, they run around back there, that, that may be a problem. But again, uh, breaking up line of sight, introduction, you know, again, it, I think they're, they're a great plant. I, I have them on my own property. I've got them in bedding areas on the edges of fields you know, I, I put them in the right locations based on the soil, and, and we'll probably get into that later, you know, the soil demands and, and landscape preferences, but, you know, definitely, there's definitely options, and, and sometimes non-native plants, you know, it's not necessarily uh, the worst thing introducing them on the landscape. I know I had a podcast about that earlier. I, I still think in this case, because of, again, the detriment and, and the lack of, you know, mass producing, especially mass producing that's in an annual basis, this is a great plant, and the Dunstan chestnut from uh, Chestnut Hill, like you know, those are are seed grown, those are those are not cultivars or, or clone varieties. So you've got to recognize that there's gonna be you know cultivars that are bred specifically that could be late dropping. And you know, those are typically grafted and you know those are, are really you know specific for a specific application. I like actually having the chestnuts produce in that September, early October timeframe because that's when, you know, food is starting to lack on the landscape and it's a great draw as deer transition onto these properties and like I said earlier, putting them in a bedding area introduces them to a bedding area on a consistent basis because of the annual production. When a lot of crops are being harvested at that time. So again, back to my point earlier, but just something I want to bring up for you know my my strategy and my secret to how I'm designing these hunting properties. So let's get into you know maybe a different topic, understanding you know the hybrid which you kind of brought up and the transgenic. You know, what they're working sure. on today, because I think, I think people aren't, you know, that term is like, it sounds like it, they're, they're designing something, right? They're designing a tree, essentially, and, and they're designing it to restore the landscape. And what does that look like? You know, you, you had association with SUNY ESF, so you, you know more th- about this than a lot of people.
2: Where, where are they <sighs> at today? Well, I graduated from SUNY ESF. I haven't worked there since or anything like that, but um, this was a a project that was in the works when I was a student there. Of course, at that time, Charles Maynard was still uh, a professor there and still working on that project. And nowadays it's uh, uh, Dr. Bill Powell, who's sort of heading off the transgenic chestnut effort there at SUNY ESF. Some of it, you know, is beyond my comprehension. In fact, when I was was sitting there in forestry class and they had Dr. Maynard come in uh, in in our silviculture class to teach us about the transgenic chestnut efforts. And he got to the point where they explain how they make the transgenic chestnut. And there was a big black rectangle that just said magic black box. And he said, this is the part that I'm not going to try to explain to forestry (laughs) students, you know. But uh, yeah, so... In that case, what they've actually done is edited chestnut DNA to include an additional gene. So they are looking at what you would call genetically engineered. It is something that you would call a GMO or genetically modified organism. Um, And in that particular case, what they did was they borrowed a gene from wheat, which allows for the production of an enzyme. And that enzyme breaks down the damaging acid that is caused by the fungus, which causes the blight. So it doesn't actually kill the fungus or prevent it from being established, but it makes it so that the tree isn't damaged by the oxalic acid that that fungus produces. Um, So as you can imagine, once you're looking GMO, there's at least some degree of pushback, but there, there is a very thorough review process with USDA FDA, EPA, and they went through a lot of studies essentially to make sure that the transgenic chestnut trees they're working with are going to be safe where they're looking at you know the chemical analysis from the leaves and the decomposed leaves and feeding them to caterpillars and all sorts of different things to see what if how how could this turn out differently but it's it's rather encouraging and they're going through the review process where um, hopefully in the next few years they'll be able to put um, what they're working on now they're calling the darling 58 the transgenic chestnut tree um, it would be nice to get that out there on the landscape part of what's nice about this method is that even though you're changing that gene the the tree is almost entirely American chestnut it's you know <laughs> there's no sacrifice of any of the character the leaves, the structure, you know, how it competes, how it grows, everything is really the same, except that it produces this enzyme, which breaks down the damaging acid. So not only does this create the potential for this single tree they're working on to get out on the landscape, but you know, that's that tree is, at this point, they'd be looking at clones where ultimately the hope is both that maybe they'd be able to create some other transgenic trees, but that when they put those on the landscape, They can pollinate other purebred American chestnut trees that can then put out a a portion of their nuts that will have that, you know, potential. It'll have those nuts will have that gene so that the trees that grow from them will be able to produce that enzyme as well.
1: That is pretty cool. A lot of science there. And I was fortunate to get a personal tour last year, you know, where they have one of their areas locked up. And I saw this particular tree. I saw there's varieties of it. I saw nut production. Uh, I was there when they, they encapsulate the, uh, the actual burrs. They've got them in a, a container. Uh, the It's all locked up. You can't get in there. And it was really interesting to talk to, you know, one of the field techs about their process and, and you know, exactly where they're at. And your example of pollination of, of the, the native trees and and that again that's just so interesting to me and I, I don't I want to say this like I am not a fan of a specific tree that's going to save necessarily or, or provide this ultimate I want to say ultimate change in the landscape there's not one species of plant that's going to just morph our hunting into something incredible but it is incredibly interesting that you know, scientifically, they've kind of come up with this, this plan and process that may add or make a large change on the landscape. But one of the issues is how do you repopulate, and this is what I, I don't understand, how do you repopulate sure. a tree species across a vast area? Basically, you need people to, to do that on their behalf. So, you know, one of the the American Chestnut Foundation, uh, that's one of the entities you can join and be a part of. And, of course, it's a really important you know consideration if you want to promote this chestnut on the landscape. I, I am not a member, but you know going to see that last year was was incredible. I'm I'm happy they they took me in, but I I got to learn some strategies and skills that I want to give at the end of this. But Tim, I I just I was amazed and impressed, and it was it was cool to see something that's still in the infancy stages. I don't know how many they've produced at this point. It's got to be in the ten thousand range at least. I know a few years ago they had fifteen hundred and. You know, they're probably in the thousand range now or twenty thousand range of production I don't I don't know what the actual number is, but it is interesting that they've they've replicated this this particular tree and I think they're getting prepared to put it on the landscape at some point
2: soon yeah well that's that's the hope and uh, you are correct that you know if it's a successful effort it will be a very slow process to restore American chestnut on the landscape, and it's something that we, we really hope for after, after we're gone. That said, when they become available, I'll be interested to get some and maybe put some on my property, um, you know, if, if I can find some good places for them. I see the transgenic chestnuts as the, the hope for the future for restoring American chestnut, um, and so I'm totally behind that. I don't have as much faith that there will be a hybrid that's going to be the future of American chestnut on the landscape that what it what it once was, but uh, I am a fan, <laughs> and uh, you know I do see what they provide. the uh, The other type of chestnut that you might find out there that isn't uh, necessarily foreign or hybrid or transgeric uh, or transgenic rather is just uh you know the wild type american chestnut as i would call it. it hasn't been selectively bred it hasn't been edited in any way and you know i still find those out there and part of the reason that those are important is because it might be possible to sort of maintain the genetics from different areas it, it, foresters we talk about different varieties within a species being provenanced. Um, you know, we think of provenance of where something something comes from, but uh, historically, we've tested different varieties within a species in different areas to say, hey, what what variety grows best here? And of course, there's going to be some natural inclination that uh, the chestnut trees that grew down south might be better suited to that environment than the ones that grew up north. The same way that you might have some really big-bodied white-tailed deer up north in Canada, but you go down to the Florida Keys and Uh, The selective pressure has made it so that you have these smaller deer. So uh, that's the other thing about the hybrids is the transgenic trees as opposed to the hybrids is I can kind of see the way forward of how the genetics from those other trees out on the landscape can be brought back into a population, whether it's by pollination with a tree that has, you know, that that wheat gene in it or whether it's another trend, you know, any one of those could be taken and, and be made into a transgenic tree through the same method. So.
1: So Tim, I've got a question for you. So just categorize this. We've got wild trees, that we've got the hybrids, uh, we've got the, the non-native, and then we have, in, in this case, the transgenic. So there's, there's multiple, you know, things at play here. So you're saying with the transgenic trees, the idea with the wild tree, and I've been in properties where there's native american chestnut that are of good size and form and they they don't look too you know blighty so to speak we want those present because again that cross-pollination potential you know could introduce you know a, a potential gain on the landscape where we're not just again worried about emplacing these new transgenic trees individually and hoping that population takes off is that is kind of, is that kind
2: of the the synopsis there Absolutely. And that's part of the hope in this effort is that when transgenic trees are on the landscape that they can pollinate other trees and then a portion of those nuts will have that added gene. Um, And in fact, because there are such limited numbers of wild growing wild type American chestnuts that sort of survive as understory sprouts, there have also been efforts to some degree To cultivate just plain, non hybrid, non GMO American chestnut for what they sometimes call mother trees. Uh, The idea being that because, for one, American chestnut will come to the maturity where it produces pollen before it's capable of receiving pollen, they would want those mother trees to basically develop enough over the next few years and, and have female flowers capable of receiving pollen when those hopeful. Uh, transgenic chestnuts are put out on the landscape.
1: Yeah. And I'm pretty sure just talking to some of the people that are part of that foundation, you know, they're, they're not advocating and, and supporting, I guess, if you're, if you already have Chinese chestnuts uh, or, or even hybrid varieties, they're, they're not so keen on the introduction of this transgenic in relationship to those at least that's been my understanding and communication with with them. And I, true or not true, that that's been my my communication with them. Let's let's set up a landscape setting. So let's let's kind of get into what the chestnut and, and let's be specific. So. You know, where are the Americans present in the landscape? We kind of gave a, a range. It's it's kind of down the eastern seaborne interior, you know, from, again, all the way up to, to Maine, parts of Maine, down to Kentucky. You know, that's kind of the range of these, a lot of these trees. You know, they have specific preferences. They do not do well in clay soil. I have tried them in clay soil. Uh, something about wet feet, the tree just doesn't do well. Sandy, loomy, you know, gravelly basically soil that has good infiltration and doesn't, you know, doesn't have a lot of water pooling uh, in it. So, you know, focusing on, on, you know, those locations. And I also recognize that uh, limestone-based soils, the trees themselves don't do well either, because I've actually tried them in uh, limestone-type soils. And, uh, And there's deficiencies, obviously, in the soil that would promote that. But sometimes those show up when you have high limestone environments. That's uh, where the, the leaves typically yellow. And I, I've seen that on the landscape. So I have some general experience there. When The one thing I really want to bring up I thought was really cool. So when I went to that event, and that event was, you know, on campus, essentially, they were showing us some varieties, these transgenic ones, uh, they were talking about sunscald. And I've seen this, if you have a tree that has, you know, very direct sunlight, particularly southern aspect, so it's getting nailed, the trunk's getting nailed, uh, what happens is the, the trunk kind of warms up, and, you know, there's, there's, the tree starts to function, and, and the cells and everything starts to become alive, and then you get these really cool drops, this happens in the wintertime, you'll get cracking, and that cracking um, essentially makes it more susceptible. Uh, susceptible to, you know, bark diseases, et cetera. And uh, it'll create cracks and in, in, in cankering on that, that trunk, so to speak. What they recommended was, and they do this with apple trees, is, is latex, diluted latex, you know, white, you paint it on the tree and it's reflective. So, you know, that's an example of if you have an orchard setting, and actually I've been trying to plant trees on north and east sides, just specifically in those examples, uh, again assuming you have the soil requirements that i explained earlier and that just kind of an example of things that i'm learning about I, I failed a bunch of this stuff i planted hybrid trees like 16 years ago so i got some experience you know i was like in my 20s i was a kid i had no idea what was going on but i was trying these different things and i was failing and i i wasn't reading any literature now i've i've learned and read literature and i, I feel like you know, those are there's some examples. What about, like, any layouts that you can think of? Anything come to mind with you, Tim, things that you've seen or, you know, th- suggestions that you have with people of just maybe design setup or things to consider with that particular variety? I know that there's cross-pollination issues with, like, Chinese and, and Japanese and, and, you know, sometimes, you know, only certain. I know mostly they're, they're wind-pollinated. They are insect-pollinated, but a lot of times wind pollinations, you're thinking about
2: relative distance of trees and things of that nature. Well, a well-drained site would help. As far as some of the hybrids that are out there, I think basically looking for open plantings like food plots and and open areas like we talked about is the best way to go with the uh, transgenic chestnut. They might be looking to underplant them in some oak hickory stands, like sites where they expected them to have existed historically. And uh, underplanting and kind of, you know, some dappled shade of an oak stand might help with some of that sun scald as well. Um, But, you know, of course, The reason for that in the the forest planting is because with the transgenic trees, they're expecting something that will be more competitive in the forest and might not be such a good idea with some of your transgenic or or foreign chestnut trees. Um, But other than that, a lot of the same stuff that we think about with, with apple is like, you know, Be prepared to to not only put them in the ground, but protect them, whether it's mulch or mats and, you know, tubes with states and cages and, you know, be prepared to water them that first year if it gets droughty during the summer.
1: So uh, I'll give you a little bit of fail on my point. So, you know, again, I planted my first tree years ago. And I put, I think, three or so on my property in, in one particular area. Within about 40 yards of each other, you know, i you like to be within that 200-foot threshold, roughly, just, again, for wind pollination. And uh, I caged them, and I left on the tree, there was, a, I think these are Chestnut Hills, they had a, like, a, a piece of paper that they had at the bottom for just explanation of what the tree is planting all that, so I just left it on the tree, and I, I essentially used it as a mouse guard. Well, we got snow, <laughs> and uh, at some point, you know, some animal, probably a rabbit, crawled up and got inside my cage somehow and 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 gnawed at the tree. The saving grace was that the the post that they had for stability that came with it, you know, protected one area of the Cambrian layer, and the tree lived. But, you know, it's important to, to either protect those those trunks. Uh, typically, I, I've tree-tubed the ones recently, the five-, six-foot tree-tube. You know, it, it just depends. Trying to get that leader above the deer head. I mean, deer will absolutely gnaw on the trees. They will rub these trees. I also like the idea of cages because I want low branching. I like low branching on the chestnuts. I think that's a, a good strategy. So that's in opposition of, of having a, a tree-tube. So just think about that. Uh, but again, I mean, uh, not everyone has a lot of cages and stakes. So, you know, there's there's a strategy there in the landscape. And to Tim's point, you know, location, 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 it's important to, to pick the right location for these trees and, and recommend that, you know, there's always the option of buying, you know, seeds from a, a good source and sticking them in the ground and, you know, using uh, local debris to, to generate a stand. And, and hopefully, you know, you use that protection of a, a treetop or branching and, and and it does kind of the same thing from a caging standpoint. And again, if you're going to cut an area and you're leaving a lot of tree tops, you know, stick some chestnuts in the ground in those areas, and I think you know you'll get some results. And it's a pretty cheap option. You know, you, you're probably spending ten cents on a you know a seedling versus twenty or thirty dollars on a, on a grown tree that's maybe two or three years old. So just just another recommendation. Tim, anything else that you could think about? Any thoughts? any strategies or any, anything else on your end or just something uh, that you, you got a, a burning, burning desire to talk about?
2: Well, I was surprised by the orchard that the American chestnut foundation put together. That was just plain non-hybrid, non-GMO American chestnut that they put there to grow it so that they'd get old, old enough to produce nuts. And then that could be an orchard as a source for nuts for more trees. And, uh, a lot of those held on. Actually, that was the photo that I sent you, uh, if you choose to use it as the thumbnail for this uh we podcast.
1: Will. Yeah. Yeah, we some
2: won. some of those really produced and now they've got the blight and all that sort of thing. But uh it was kind of nice to see an area with enough of them planted at a density like that, even though you could see signs of the blight that they got big enough to to actually put out a chestnut crop. But if you ever decide that, you know, you're or you've let's say you've got one out there and you know it produces nuts and you're gonna try and go get them the husk wants to stay on the tree and then open up and just drop the nut on the forest floor or on the, on the floor of your food plot. And there's a good chance you're not going to be there <laughs> in time to actually get the nuts. So, you know, when we went and, and harvested them. We were trying to pull that whole bird down out of the tree and harvest those before they opened up, which, uh, you know, how spiky those things are, but, uh, yeah that was just uh that was something really neat and some of the folks there at the american chestnut foundation have been working on that a really long time uh so that it was just a neat experience you know walking around and seeing all those american chestnut trees laden with actual nuts so
1: <laughs> yeah it's that's so yeah it's so cool that it's so cool seeing that i mean again just a, a tree species that are not a lot of people are familiar with Again, recommending them on certain in certain landscape types and certain conditions. You know, they could be a great draw, and it's something to consider on the landscape. And, you know, again, you know, different varieties to play with. Again, hybrid or Chinese are usually the most available. Uh, again, try to get localized. There's usually resources all over the place. I've got a guy 15 minutes down the road, you know, that, that produces them. And, and, again, a local variety, it's it's helpful and it's it's definitely an option for you in the landscape and something something you shouldn't overlook, especially being an annual producer. and And I would absolutely, in certain landscape settings, recommend it. Again, clay soils are pretty much out of the question. So sorry for you guys with clay soils, but everybody else, you know, you're generally in play. So you've got a lot of options.
2: Sure, and I'm really hoping that this transgenic tree that SUNY ESF has put so much work into that that becomes a real option hopefully just in the next few years where how available it is might be a different question, but uh, you know, hopefully that becomes an option where folks like us can go get a transgenic darling 58 and put it in the ground and watch it produce chestnuts and put off pollen. That'll, you know, hopefully produce some other uh, chestnuts resistant to the blight. And uh, yeah, that's really what's going to, you know, long after we're gone, allow for people to, to walk through and just see that, carpet of chestnuts the way that we go sometimes into the oak woods and see just a carpet of acorns in there and it's everywhere. You know, hopefully that's part of the future and that'll be, uh, that'll be the transgenic chestnut. But for now, absolutely. Hybrids are a a great option for uh, providing that food source.
1: Yep. Game changer on the landscape and something you all should consider. Again, plantings are not the first thing I do with most properties, but it it could be a little added bonus and, and that's the way you should look at it because it's, it's not a save all. It's a good option, and it's something that, you know, I, I typically recommend on a large percentage of client properties, particularly where I'm working. So, Tim, anything else, man? I appreciate, you know, insight and the education here. I know you're, you're kind of a tree guy. I'll, I'll give you that. So I appreciate the education here because some of the stuff that I'm not so familiar with, I'm doing the application side of the thing. So it's, it's, it's pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, you can always give me a call. I call a lot of other foresters and wildlife biologists in the normal course of my work and say, "Hey, do you know what this is? What would you do here?" So
1: <laughs> Absolutely. All right, well, we're going to be on again. I know that we've got a couple podcasts planned in the future. There's some topics that that we both are passionate about and want to get into together and and again, you're just such a great resource for for me and, and everybody and and go visit Tim if you want to get a hold of a consulting forester. You know, he does habitat management, habitat plans. In addition to his forest management plans, he's extremely knowledgeable. He's a resource for me. He's part of my team. You know, I leverage him when I need him. You know, reach out to him at Greenfire Forestry. Uh, He's got a website. And, uh, you know, send him an email. Uh, This is what he's here for. That's why we're resources for everybody. So, you know, thanks for being on, Tim. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me on. I look forward to the next one. Appreciate it, John.
1: All right, man. Talk to you soon.
2: Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and
0: his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.